and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. God cannot help you unless you allow God to help you. Many of us could be accused of trying to out-God God. We think we know more than God. We think we can do more than God. We actually believe that what we want and how we want it is better than the way God can bring it to us. In fact, we get so busy doing what we do the way we do it, there is no opportunity for God to get into our lives at all. God is so merciful. God will not fight you. If God did, you would get beat up badly. Most of us could use a divine butt-whipping. Instead, God sits back and waits to be invited into your life. God will let you do whatever you want to do until you realize that God can do it better. If you want to run the show, God will let you. If you want to pull all the strings, that's up to you. If you want to insist that what you are doing is the way it should be done even when you are not getting anywhere, go right ahead. God will let you run yourself ragged if you choose to do so. Unfortunately, you may not always be aware that you are in God's way. You think you are demonstrating your independence. You think that it's all up to you and that you must do it or it won't get done. God knows better. God knows that God cannot fail. However, God has no need to prove to you what God can do. How do you know when you are in God's way? How do you know when you are running your program rather than allowing God's divine plan to unfold? It's very simple. We're here in the Archbishop's Corner, where Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair is here to help you know when you are in God's way. If you are struggling to make things happen and they are not happening, it's you, not God, running the show. Until today, you may have been directing your own life and attempting to produce your own blessing. Just for today, ask for direction. In the Archbishop's Corner, you can open yourself to God's guidance. It's where you can give up your attachments to having things your way and open yourself up to God's way. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for helping us see the unfolding of God's divine plan in our lives and helping us trust enough to step aside and let God get into our lives. How are you today? Well, I'm fine, thank you, and Happy New Year to you and every all, all of our listeners, to everyone. Well, Happy New Year to you. Is it started out to be a good New Year so far? Well, it has, I suppose, but, you know, the great, not to be gloomy about it, but the great specter of COVID is upon us, and obviously when you're in a position like uh, that of the Archbishop, where you see the whole church and you see the the local communities of our archdiocese and you hear about a lot of things, I know that uh, it's not a very happy time for a lot of people because this uh, coronavirus is uh, is getting a lot of people sick. Well, I know of one priest who has come down with the coronavirus. You must know of others. Are there others? Well, I just heard of one today, as a matter of fact. There have been, I heard of one, and he's on the mend, and now I've heard another. I, assuming that the priests do tell us, and I, I, I think they would. So if that's the case, then I'm glad that it's not worse than it is. But, you know, we are in contact with people. We have to be extremely careful for their sake and ours. And I imagine people who sit on the other side of the pews from us as we celebrate the Eucharist, they are being very, very careful, and some are probably deciding that they would prefer to stay home, watch Mass on television, or streamed live rather than participate in Mass, and that's probably a good thing, wouldn't you say? 
Well, yes, but I would give this qualification. I, I would say, first of all, that I always have respected and will respect anybody that has uh, misgivings about being in a, a group that they choose, that, therefore, not to go to Sunday Mass for that reason. And I respect that, and they should be at peace. But if they're going to sports events and to the restaurant or, you know, shopping, well, then I don't think you can, <laughs> you can't say mm -hmm. that, uh, that then that mass should be excluded. You know, in other words, it has to be, I think, to be honest, it, it has to be proportionate to our behavior in other venues. And I must say that, you know, I think perhaps I mentioned this on a previous program. I don't know. But we estimate at present that about 15 percent of our Catholic people are attending Sunday mass. Now, when I've gone to parishes on weekends, uh, I find that for COVID, the attendance is pretty good. You know, people are spaced out, they're wearing masks, yeah. and the church is not at all empty. But I think that that varies from parish to parish. I've heard of some parishes where there's hardly anybody there. We have to be uh, prudent, and we have to be careful of our health. We have to take all the precautions. But I think, and now I'm just speaking here personally, you know, that I think after these years, m most of us are not prepared to, to just totally be isolated. I, I think people feel they just have to to get on with life, but they have to do it prudently and with, with caution. This new strain apparently is easily spread, but for most people, but not all, the symptoms are not as dire as they might have been earlier. But then again, they also say that the Delta variant is still strong. Yes. So all in all, it makes it a very difficult situation. And I try, like all of us do, to be prudent in my uh, what I do and to be careful about myself, about masks and distancing and everything. And that's the, all that we can do. Let's look at today's celebration, because the church today celebrates the feast of the baptism of the Lord, and this brings to an end the season of Christmas. The church recalls our Lord's second manifestation, or epiphany, which occurred on the occasion of his baptism in the Jordan. Talk for a minute about why it was necessary for Christ, with no sins, to undergo a rite that brings about the forgiveness of sin. Well, it is, I think, as the scriptures say, to uh, give witness to all righteousness, that Jesus uh, accepts, you know, John the Baptist said, I'm the one that should be baptized by you, not, the, not me baptizing you. Uh, and, uh, but Jesus uh, submits to this in humility uh, as an inauguration of his ministry of preaching uh, the forgiveness of sins. And that's the, the occasion when, you know, the Holy Spirit descends and the voice of the Father is heard. So it's a very powerful beginning. You know, we have to remember that Jesus, we t traditionally th think of, of 30 years of, of life before he began his ministry, 30 years of hidden life, mm -hmm. uh, living a human life as completely ordinary uh, as yours and mine, although I'm sure there are you know, aspects of Jesus' personality and behavior and experiences that were not meant for us to know. They're not in, as part of the scriptural witness, but that were exceptional in some regard. But nevertheless, that's part of him embracing our humanity. He didn't just be, he just didn't just take on a body, you know, that he became like a, a zombie or something. Jesus became a fully human in every way that we are, uh, but without sin. You know, we say he's true God and true man. And the true man part involves uh, even a hidden life and all the experiences of life and growth in the world. I think traditionally we say that Jesus was never reported to experience illness, and perhaps we can say that, you know, for those hidden years he didn't either, but that, I mean, that we don't know. 
but anyway, to get back to your question, you know, this is in God's mysterious way to inaugurate this full humanity of Christ in, a, in his ministry uh, of redemption. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening during this upcoming week. Back in 1910, radio pioneer Lee DeForest arranged the world's first radio broadcast to the public in New York City. He succeeded in broadcasting the voice of Enrico Caruso, along with other stars of the Metropolitan Opera, to several receiving locations in the city, where listeners with earphones marveled at wireless music from the air. It was the first broadcast to reach the public and the beginning of a new era in which wireless radio communication became almost universal. Do you think radio stations still have a big impact on society? And Archbishop, you better say yes, since this is your radio station. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, of course, obviously they do, uh, but they have. Bec it is now uh, just one of many forms of communication. And yeah. I think it raises the larger question that many people are raising about this connectedness that we all have that can be a great blessing, but it can also be downright debilitating. You know, I've heard people say to me that they've encountered young people who just are glued to their mobile phone, that they can't, mm -hmm. they don't seem to be able to communicate any other way, that they, they're being wired differently. I mean, they're, they're in danger of being wired differently. And uh, that is a cause of concern, you know? I mean, I, I remember being in a restaurant where there were parents and uh, and obviously one of their children maybe a young teenager and the parents are carrying on a conversation and ordering their dinner and the young person with a very dour look on their face has earphones big earphones on and is playing with a with a cell phone yeah. I mean, totally disconnected from the reality of his family uh, family and and the meal now, maybe that's an extreme case, but I do think everybody uh, who's thoughtful about this is realizing that we have to be, this can be dehumanizing. It can be so isolating that people no longer have a sense of connectedness, of human connectedness, not just wireless. But go, go back with me in time to when you and I were teenagers. Weren't we walking around with transistor radios up to our ears? And weren't our parents saying the same thing about us? What's the matter with these kids? Don't they pay attention to what we're doing and what we're saying? Well, I suspect you more than me were in such a situation. <laughs> but, well, no. But I mean, that, that, that's I mean, that's like uh, the cave caveman compared to to today. I mean, to, this to is today, a whole yeah. different. Listening to a radio uh, is one thing, but having it become your whole world uh, and not only one way but two way communication uh, that that's something very different. So, no, like you, everything, the point that you make is well taken. Yeah, like everything in the world, uh, you know, innovation and and things that that can help us, they can have a good purpose or a bad purpose. They can, they have good things and bad things. Saturday of this week is National Hat Day, the perfect time to learn the history of hats. Talk for a minute about the historical significance of the mitre that a bishop wears for liturgical celebrations. Not something that you'd wear going shopping to Walmart or anything. But what about this mitre? Well, hats, you know, uh, in history, uh, I would say what we might call a headdress or headgear, have always played an important part in human vesture. And I forget the exact prayer that goes with the conferral of the mitre for a bishop, but it, it does have to do with uh, the, the role that the bishop has. You know, the, the ring we wear, we are, we are told that we are wedding the flock entrusted to us, you know, that the church is our bride, so it's kind of a wedding ring. The crozier, obviously, or pastoral staff is precisely that, that it's meant to be the sign of the shepherd, 
that we are to mm-hmm. pasture uh, Christ's flock by uh, carrying that that uh, crozier, that pastoral staff. The the mitre, though, is more I think has to do, as I recall, with the with with uh, the role of authority and with teaching uh, that uh, that that a bishop has uh, presiding. And it's too bad, you know, I, a lot of that men in particular don't wear hats very much anymore. Well, I mean, I always do in the winter a cap or something, but a, the nice hats that men used to wear long ago. I guess it was President John F. Kennedy who, for the first time, didn't want to wear a hat, and it created a whole new fashion trend that's with us still. But uh, in many traditional cultures around the world, some kind of head covering is still particular. well, for, for both men and women, but particularly for men, is still part of their, their um, culture. Let's take a look at our gospel now. On this, the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord, the ninth day of January. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the third chapter, and after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and asking for your thoughts and the impact on our lives. As the people were in expectation, and all men questioned in their hearts concerning John, whether perhaps he were the Christ, John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. Archbishop, talk to us about what this gospel means and suggests to you. Well, I think I probably already have in the discussion we had earlier about the desire of Jesus to be baptized by John. Mm. And it's very Trinitarian. You know, I think that's an extremely important element here, you know. Uh, the voice of the Father, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And uh, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. So this is a, you know, we shouldn't take that for granted, you know, that the the mystery of the Trinity is something that Jesus came to reveal. Uh, for Judaism, this was a very great, um, what should I say, crisis, you know, I mean, in the sense that, and, and sometimes Muslims and Jews accuse Christians of not being monotheists because, you know, we have this uh, this doctrine of the Trinity. How can this be that there's one God if we, if we talk that way or believe that way. But again, that is the great mystery of the Trinity, that it's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, that's an extremely important element of what happened at Jesus' baptism. It kind of is the opening of the heavens to this great mystery, this great truth that will become elaborated in uh, Jesus' ministry, in all that he says and does, his teaching. And then uh, as the mystery unfolds in Pentecost, uh, well, the resurrection at Easter, then Pentecost, and then, you know, the ascension and uh, the life of the church. When the people were asking if John might be the Christ, he responded, I'm baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What did he mean he will baptize you with fire? Well, remember how at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles in the form of tongues of fire. And Jesus said he'd come to cast fire upon the earth. Uh, it's an important reminder to us that um, what does fire do? Fire uh, can destroy, also uh, gives light and um, warmth. Uh, yeah. it, it, so 
this image of fire is is very important that remember the burning bush of Moses that it is a fire uh, of the bush that did not consume the bush so God's fire doesn't destroy us God's fire transforms us and uh, lightens us and you know if you're we say if you're set on fire for something that means you're full of enthusiasm and zeal and and that's what the Holy Spirit uh, gives to us I think the other thing that fire does too is it purifies before sterilization was known in order to purify an instrument you would heat it with fire yes well that, yes and and of course there are allusions to that also in the Bible about the fire purifying um, so yes, all of these th things come to bear in, in, in describing the scene. Our scripture passage says, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Is Luke telling us this because this is what actually was seen by the people witnessing the event, or is this symbolic? Well, I don't think we should ever think that the scriptures are just making up uh, things when they when na narrate something. If, if that's the witness that Luke's gi Luke gives, uh, then uh, that is uh, uh, to be taken as uh, not just symbolic. All right, let's look at Chelsea's question. Chelsea is from Berlin. In the early chapters of Genesis, our average lifespan of 80 years is woefully short compared to when folks lived to be 300, 400, even 900 years old. Are we supposed to take these long lifespans as literal or symbolic? Well, Chelsea, I think most scripture scholars would say that they should be taken as being symbolic uh, and not uh, literal. Diane from East Hartford says, the March for Life will take place in Washington, D.C. on Friday, January 21st, with thousands of people expected to attend. Why, after almost 50 years since the Supreme Court decision to legalize abortion in America, do you think that this march is still so important? Well, Diana, it's still so important because abortion has been legalized, and so this is an attempt to stand up for life and to say that we shouldn't be doing this. And of course, right now, uh, this is a hot item uh, on the agenda of the Supreme Court, et cetera, very contentious uh, in our country, um, and we'll just have to see how it, how it plays out. Um, here in the Archdiocese, we've engaged our young people in particular uh, in our Catholic high schools to participate in something. And uh, this year we're not going to Washington as we usually do because of COVID and all, but we are planning something locally that I think will be very good for our young people uh, to bring them together uh, to promote life and to have them experience uh, one another in a, in a very positive and prayerful way. So we're looking forward to that to take place soon. Do you think that this is something that older people can participate in as well, along with the young people? Uh, no, uh, this is going to be just for our, our high schools, but we That's are right. also planning, uh, the Connecticut Catholic Conference has in mind to do something uh, for everyone, uh, older, older uh, for the adults, maybe this uh, summer or something. That, of course, COVID has thrown everything in, into uh, tilt, you know, but, this uh, is true. but we, uh, the Connecticut Catholic Conference continues to work on this, and I'm sure there'll be something. Ethan from Harbington said, According to the 2021 World Watch List, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith every single day. Why do you think the media is so afraid of using the word martyr when describing the people being killed around the world because of their Christian faith? Well, Ethan, you'd have to ask them, but a martyr, of course, has a strong religious uh, uh, significance, and rightly so. And it is true that, in fact, I'm surprised that it's only 13 every day because... 
when you read about all these things that are happening, and I know there are a lot of of um, these watchdog agencies that look into this, but it is true that uh, Christians are being persecuted in many, many places. And it's not always with martyrdom. It also is with uh, the curtailment of their civil liberties or different forms of oppression. Uh, you know, sadly, right now in India, the place where Mother St. Teresa of Calcutta and her sisters are, and there are many Catholics there, particularly in the South, and I know of a diocese in the North, uh, but the present government is is trying to turn the screws on on them. Uh, you know, for example, recently they said that the sisters cannot accept uh, funds from abroad uh, to contribute to their work. And uh, and then if you get into places like Pakistan, oh my goodness, people are are really they're charged with uh, capital crimes of supposedly uh, blaspheming uh, the Prophet Muhammad and things that many of these things are are very contrived. So there are a lot of there are a lot of awful things happening to to uh, uh, baptized Christians around the world, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, you know, even in the last century, in the twentieth century, uh, it's been shown that there were more Christian martyrs in the twentieth century than all the previous centuries combined. Of course, you have to take into account you know population and everything, but still, the age of martyrs is not just in the ancient church. And I dare say that if you're going to be a devout practicing Catholic in the United States today, uh, you are going to pay a price for that in certain circles. You definitely are. It might not be that you're going to be, you know, put in jail or or, or killed, uh, but there are many ways that society can uh, belittle and push aside uh, or even intimidate uh, people who believe. I wonder how many of our Catholic people are willing to stand up for their faith in conversation uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say that they don't. I, I know that there are many who do, but you always have to pay a price for your faith, for living your faith. Um, it, it's it, You have to be willing to lay down your life, and there are different kinds of martyrdoms. And in this world in which we live, when uh, people get together and talk about the Catholic Church, are you going to just stand there and participate? Or are you going to stick up for the Church, for your faith? Yes, charitably. But yes, and about the moral, the moral teaching, you know, I mean, that, 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 that's going to be much more difficult. It's already very difficult. It's going to get greater. Meg from Cheshire says, in the Bible, it says that the Magi followed a star. I interpret that to mean that for them, the star was a guiding light. Who should we be looking for to serve as our guiding light in our own religious and spiritual journeys? Well, always to Jesus, but you know, there are many beautiful images about the Maristella of Mary, the star of the sea, Mary, the, the guiding light who leads us to Christ. I think that that image of a star is associated uh, particularly with the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, so I, I can't think of a better guiding light in our own religious and spiritual journey than her. James from Seymour says, during his weekly public audience on December 29th, Pope Francis spoke about the contrast between St. Joseph, who acted with courage in the face of hardship and fear, and Herod, who acted with arrogance and violence. The Pope said, the lesson that Joseph leaves us today is this, life always reserves adversities for us. This is true. And in the face of them, we can also feel threatened, afraid, but it is not by bringing out the worst in us, as Herod does, that we can overcome certain moments, but by behaving like Joseph, who reacts to fear with the courage to entrust himself to God's providence. Do you think we should endeavor to be like St. Joseph and respond to our difficulties with courage and trust in God's plan? 
Well, clearly I do. I can't imagine it could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, yes, the the Pope's words there are, are, are very wise and insightful. You know, I wrote an article for the Catholic transcript uh, about St. Joseph. I think he kind of got short shrift uh, in the year dedicated to St. Joseph that Pope Francis proclaimed. The problem was the Pope proclaimed it like two days before it was supposed to start. And with COVID, we really, during this last year, yeah. been so distracted. You know, St. Joseph is our patron of our archdiocese. He's the, our cathedral is named for him. As I say, I wrote that article uh, in the transcript uh, calling attention to the fact that at Christmas in particular, the figure of Joseph is very important for us for all the reasons that the Pope uh, gives in, in what he said at that audience. So I pray to St. Joseph every day, and I hope that our listeners will too. I think the head of any household should pray to St. Joseph for direction, guidance, and the courage to bring up a family, a cohesive unit, and and be a part of, of the strength of that family, that the individual who prays becomes the strength, the person that directs the family with courage and trust in God's plan. Ray from Guilford says, I've not been to confession in at least 10 years. I want to go, but I have no idea what to say. How am I to remember all my sins and the number of times that I've committed them? Well, first of all, Ray, uh, I'm happy to know that after all these years, you want to go to confession. God bless you for that. That's a great grace and inspiration that you shouldn't pass up a gift, uh, grace from God to have this desire. Well, don't worry about what to say. Uh, First of all, you can just tell the priest that you haven't been for that long and ask him to, to guide you. Uh, through it. And I've done that many times. I'm sure you have too, uh, Father Gadzak, where mm-hmm. we, we can lead people through what they need to do. Um, as far as all your sins and the number of times I've committed them, well, we have to understand that that means that you, the church is trying to say that you, you have to have a certain examination of conscience when you go to confession. You can't just say, well, you know, I'm not always a good person and I'm sorry. But you have to you know, on the one hand, you don't want to over-exaggerate this, you know, that you come in with a huge grocery list, especially after 10 years. But I do think, uh, Ray, that if you examine your conscience before you go to church, before you go to the confessional, you can see, you know, in light of the gospel and and also in the sacrament of penance, you can find uh, examinations of conscience that lead you through simply through the, the, the commandments and, the, and the, the teachings of Jesus to see where you have you have done wrong or you failed to do something good, uh, you know, and, and not to be overly scrupulous about it, but simply to to have a sense of where you're at and, and, and what you need to, to say. But again, not to be scrupulous about it, but to have some sense of uh, how you have, what kind of person you've been in, in your relationship to God and in your relationship to other people. So if somebody comes to you in confession, Archbishop, and says, I did so-and-so and so-and-so. However, I don't remember how many times. Maybe it was 10 times. Maybe it was 20 times. I just don't remember. What do you say? Yeah, I, I think when it comes to the number, you know, I think we have to we have to be reasonable and prudent about these things. You know, the church, I think, says, the, says number because I'm going to use an extreme example to, to make a point. If, if a person says, I, my last confession was, you know, I don't know, five years ago, and I committed the, the, the sin of adultery. Well, if they committed the sin of adultery once, or they committed it 50 times, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's a little bit of difference in where they're at spiritually. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to, 
you know, like if, if you if you have a bad temper and you you lose your temper, and you know that you you can think of some instances where you've done it. Well, it's not like you have to sit down and say I did it seventeen and a half times since my last confession. Yeah. But you do have to have some sense of number in in as much as how how big is this in your behavior? You know, that's the kind of thing that you you need to to do. But again, I wouldn't fret about that. The confessor, a good confessor, if he can, it will ask, you know, about things like this, if, about uh, if, if, if there's some question here of, of number or frequency or whatever. Uh, but uh, the main thing is to entrust yourself to Jesus in confession and to make a good, act, a good examination of conscience and to, to, to do the, your best to express where you're at and, and the, your need to be forgiven. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the show with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, as we enter a new year uh, of grace, a year of the Lord, 2022, we know that you are uh, the, the source and summit of all that is. Through you, all things were made, and through you, all things have been remade uh, in the great act of redemption. We pray that amid all of our trials and difficulties, especially the sufferings and displacement that's brought about by the pandemic, that you will always be close to us and to those for whom we pray, that you will protect us from evil, protect us from illness, but above all, that you will protect us from sin, that you will help us by your grace always uh, to resist temptation, to do what is right and good, and to avoid what is evil. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you for all the information you've imparted. We look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you.